Good morning, friends. It's a pleasure to be here with you and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together. Uh, Join me again as we go to God in prayer to pray for His blessing on this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we turn but You? We ask that you would speak to us now by your spirit, through your word, teaching us about your goodness, your sovereign power. By your spirit, we pray that you would grant faith and strengthen faith today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 50. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on pages 43 and 44. And as always, I encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it in a few moments. And I want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you because we'll be looking at it often in our time together. In two weeks, we'll be doing an overview sermon on the entire book of Genesis in which I'm going to try to draw out the major themes and main point of the book, but today we're considering the final chapter of the book. We've come a long way since we started the series back in October of 2019. We made it through Genesis 11 before COVID hit, and then we picked the book back up in November of 2021, and we've averaged about a sermon per chapter since then. When all is said and done, there will have been about 50, I think 57 total sermons. And I want you to notice how far we've come in the book itself. If you have Genesis 50 open in front of you, go ahead and look at the last verse of the book. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt you to notice the stark contrast between the beginning of the book of Genesis and the end of the book of Genesis. The book begins with life, vibrant life, perfect life in the presence of God, in the lushness of his garden temple. And now the book ends with death. Bones in a coffin in Egypt. The curse of sin and death remains. But while the book seems to end on a hopeless note with death having the final word, we'll find that there is much to be hopeful for in this chapter, and not only in this chapter, but in our lives today. Because this chapter has a lot to say to us about how we should live today, and about why we can be hopeful about the future. So let me go ahead and read Genesis 50 for us now. I invite you to follow along as I read. This is God's word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, 
for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. If you're taking notes, the main lesson of Genesis 50 is that you can live by faith and die in faith 
because God will sovereignly keep all of his promises to his people. You can live by faith and die in faith because God will sovereignly keep all of his promises to his people. With the rest of our time, we're going to go ahead and walk through the chapter. I'll explain it as we go. Then we'll consider how this passage prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Then lastly, we'll consider what this passage means for us today. So let's go ahead and look at the text. You can start back at the beginning of chapter 50. Just let your eyes fall there. You'll recall that Jacob in chapter 49 has just finished pronouncing a prophetic blessing over each of his sons. That was chapter 48 and 49. After he finishes, he gives Joseph explicit instructions about where he is to be buried when he dies, and then he dies. Chapter 50 opens just after his death. Look there with me. Joseph is understandably distraught at the passing of his father. He falls on him, weeps over him, and kisses him. He then commands Egyptian physicians to embalm him. Quick question for the kids here. Don't know if you've studied Egyptian history or anything like that in school. Can any of you tell me what happens when someone is embalmed? Thinking specifically about what they did in Egypt. Abram. Their dead bodies preserved. Anyone else want to shed more specificity on it? What would they do? Bridget? Put salts on them. Cooper in the back. What's that? Uh, You were going to say what Bridget said? Elijah? Boom, Elijah. That is right. They pulled their brain out through their nose. They would remove certain organs so that the body could be preserved. That's exactly right. And they did all that to preserve the remains of the person who died. But what type of people, kids, were normally embalmed in Egypt, in the back Malacca? What's that? I couldn't hear you. One more time. People of importance. That's right. Pharaohs, nobility, rulers. That's right. Isn't it interesting that Jacob is being embalmed? Maybe it's because of his relationship to Joseph, but I think Moses also wants to see that Jacob is being treated as a royal figure. Why do I say that? Well, because his funeral procession is nothing short of a funeral for a king. Not only do the Egyptians mourn for him for 70 days, but look at verses 4 to 6. Joseph asks Pharaoh to take a leave of absence to bury Jacob in the cave where Abraham and Sarah are buried in the land of Canaan. Pharaoh tells him he can go. Now look at what happens next. Verse 7, Joseph goes up from Egypt to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only the children and the flocks stayed behind. And we can assume that they stayed behind because of how much more slowly they would have traveled. We heard Uh, Moses talked about that earlier in the book of Genesis. But keep reading. There went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. This was a massive funeral procession. I would say that if you're even paying attention to the language of going up 
went up, go up, which is repeated throughout the chapter. It is explicit language that is used during the Exodus. This is like a foreshadowing of the Exodus that is going to happen out of Egypt 400 years from now. Israel is dead, entombed in Egypt, and yet Egypt, the Egyptians, and the Israelites are going up to the land of Canaan to place him in the land that God promised to him. This is like foreshadowing in a different kind of way because when we get to the actual Exodus, you're going to see a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and hated Israel. But what do you notice that might be different? God promised earlier in the book of Genesis, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This Pharaoh blesses Jacob and his family and so is blessed. Later, Pharaoh does not bless Jacob and his family and is cursed. But I think you're supposed to see here this future foreshadowing, this foreshadowing of a future exodus going on here. Then they come to Atad, where the entire procession laments for seven days. You see the deep grief in the language. They lamented with a very great and grievous lamentation. It was so great that the Canaanites renamed the place Abel Mizraim, which means meadow of weeping. And then his sons finally come to the cave in the field at Machpelah the cave that Abraham bought, and there Jacob was buried alongside him. Then after that, they go back to Egypt, and the story continues. In verses 15 to 21, we read about how Joseph's brothers began to fear that Joseph would take vengeance on them now that Jacob was dead, right? They send a letter to Joseph telling him about one of Jacob's final dying wishes, which was, that for, which was for Joseph to forgive the evil that his brothers committed against him upon receiving the letter. Joseph begins weeping because weeping there is a result of his love for them, his heart towards them. Like, how could you ever think that I would take vengeance on you? I have forgiven you. We have been reconciled. Now look at verse 18. His brothers came and fell down before him. Just as he predicted all those years before, just as God sovereignly revealed to him that his brothers would bow down to him. The end of the book, his brothers do indeed bow down to him. God continues keeping his promises, both big promises and small ones, like your brothers will bow down to you. Then Joseph comforts them. I want you to notice here a difference between Joseph and Adam at the beginning of the book. Joseph's like a new Adam. Look at verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Whereas Adam took God's place by deciding for himself what was good for him, Joseph recognizes he is not God. Vengeance, justice, those things are in the Lord's hands. Those are not mine to carry out. Not only that, he recognizes that God has been sovereignly working in and through and over everything that has happened. Look at what he says. As for you, you meant it for for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understands that though they intended to do him harm and what they did was evil, even so, God, in his sovereign and boundless freedom, was able to use what was evil for good. And not just Joseph's good, but good for the very brothers who sinned against him, 
and good for the many people who were saved through Joseph's wives governing during the famine. But we not only see a man who trusts God, but who's also full of God's grace and kindness. He reassures his brothers. He tells them twice, do not fear. He promises to provide for them and their children in an, in an ongoing manner. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What a demeanor for a person to respond to the people who committed such great acts of evil against him, not only to forgive them, but to comfort them and speak kindly to them and to commit himself to providing for them for the remainder of his days. And then the book of Genesis draws to a close in verses 22 and following. Joseph remains in Egypt. His children have children. And then as Joseph nears the end of his life, look at verse 24. He tells his brothers, God will one day visit them and bring them out of the land of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Canaan. And when God does that, they are to bring his bones with them to the land of Canaan. Then in verse 26, we read, so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. While this may seem like an anticlimactic, maybe even a depressing end to a book that opened with so much promise, I want you to see that even as Joseph is approaching the end of his life, he knows that God will still sovereignly keep all of the promises he has made. Joseph has lived by faith, and now, like Jacob before him, he is dying in faith, waiting for God to sovereignly fulfill all that he has promised. We need to remember here that God promised Abraham Many chapters earlier, Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that his descendants would become sojourners in a land that was not their own. They would be afflicted for 400 years, but then God would visit them and bring them out with great possessions. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. And here at the end of his life, Joseph is saying, that is yet to come. Continue trusting in those promises. Continue walking by faith, knowing that God will surely carry it out, whether it happens in your lifetime or not. And Joseph sees that those promises are already coming true in his lifetime, right? God promised that they would become sojourners in a foreign land, a land that was not their own. The nation of Israel has taken up residence in Egypt. Check. And seeing the promises that God has already sovereignly kept, He knows that God will sovereignly keep the promises that are yet unanswered. God promised that his people would be afflicted for 400 years, and they will be afflicted for 400 years in Egypt. But God would visit them. He would judge the nation of Egypt. He would bring them up out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, which he promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that, friends, is exactly what happens In the very next book, I think one of the things that we need to realize when we come to the first five books of the Bible is that in the Hebrew scriptures, these are one book, the Pentateuch. What we call Genesis is like chapter one of their book. So when you come to Joseph's death, you're just, nope, there's more to come. 
The climax hasn't even come yet. We haven't even gotten to the point where God actually does deliver his people out of Egypt and does bring them into the promised land. That is exactly what happens in the very next book, the book of Exodus. The people of Israel multiply greatly according to God's promises that they would be more than the sand on the seashore. A new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and this king enslaved the people of Israel just as God promised. The people of Israel suffering under the oppression of slavery, cry out to God, and God visits them just as he promised. He brings judgment on the nation of Egypt just as he promised. He brings the people of Israel out with great possessions just as he promised, and he brings them into the land of Canaan, a land that he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just as he promised. And the reason that this passage is important for us is because we also know that God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt and his bringing them into the promised land of Canaan wasn't God's ultimate goal. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, God begins making promises of a new exodus. He begins making promises that he would visit his people once again and deliver them not from physical slavery in Egypt, but from spiritual slavery to sin. And he would bring them not into the promised land of Canaan, but a new promised land where his people would dwell with him forever. Hit pause real quick. Fast forward to the end of the Bible. Now look at the beginning of the Bible, chapter one, God's people in his presence, in his place, under his rule, in the garden. At the end of the Bible, God's people in his presence, in his place, under his rule, in the new heavens, new earth. The Bible is one glorious story. Get it, we're, that's, that's where we're going, and we're not there yet. Just as Joseph was like, we're not there yet. He hasn't brought us to Canaan. Today, we're like, we're not there yet. He hasn't brought us to the new heavens and new earth. But that, friends, is where we are going. Such good news. A new promised land where God's people could dwell with him in peace forever. That's what God has done and is still doing through his son, Jesus Christ. God, in his mercy, heard the groans of his people who were enslaved to sin. And in Jesus Christ, God has visited and redeemed his people from sin. How many of you own Slugs and Bugs CDs or listen to Slugs and Bugs? Y'all know this one? God has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Slugs and Bugs, anyone? Y'all got to get those CDs or listen to them on Spotify. But like, God has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. He's raised up the Messiah who is leading us to the new promised land. In Jesus, God sovereignly sent the Savior of the world to suffer at the hands of his very own brothers. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And through their crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross, God sovereignly brought it about that many would be saved. But more than that, through Jesus, God has not only forgiven us of our sins, but has promised to bring us to be with him where he is. He has promised to visit us once again and to bring us up into the true promised land the heavenly 
Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, the everlasting city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And, is God. and possessing that city, that heavenly city, is why both Jacob and Joseph wanted to be buried in Canaan. That's what's important about their instructions about being, being buried back in Canaan. Take my bones with you. It's kind of like you're dead, dude. What does it matter to you? No, it matters because Canaan is a down payment on that future heavenly city. Jacob and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac knew that Canaan wasn't it, that Canaan pointed forward to a new and greater city. They knew that the promised land of Canaan was only a down payment on a much greater promised land, a land flowing not with milk and honey, but flowing with the river of the water of life emanating from the presence of God himself and on whose banks are the trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Jacob and Joseph were like Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, who the author of Hebrews says died in faith. They died waiting for God to fulfill his promise to give his people the promised land, not the land of Canaan, but according to the author of Hebrews, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, and he will come to bring them to it. These two men, Jacob and Joseph, and so many other men and women like them throughout Scripture, lived by faith and died in faith because they knew God would sovereignly keep all of his promises. And friends, because God has sovereignly kept his promises and will sovereignly keep the promises that have yet not come to pass, we also can live by faith and we also can die in faith. And I want you to notice what we learn from this passage about what it looks like to live by faith and die in faith. This is what it should look like in our lives this week. First, notice what it looks like to live by faith. Living by faith looks like trusting that God is sovereignly at work in all things to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. Look again at verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What the brothers meant for evil, God sovereignly meant for good. God, without participating in or being culpable for the brothers' sins, yet used their sins to sovereignly bring about the fulfillment of his purposes, which means that nothing, nothing that happened to Joseph happened by chance. I want you to track with me here. God was sovereignly working in Jacob's sinful favoritism towards Joseph, which ended him up in Egypt in the first place. God was sovereignly working in Jacob's decision to make Joseph a coat of many colors, which inflamed his brother's hatred of him. God was sovereignly working in the brother's plot to murder him, and Judah's plan to sell him into slavery, sovereignly working when they decided to sell him into slavery so that Midianite slave traders just happened to be coming by. 
Sovereignly working when Joseph just so happened to be sold into Potiphar's house. Sovereignly working when Joseph was thrown into prison and just so happened to be put in charge of Pharaoh's cupbearer and, uh, and baker. Sovereignly working when Joseph interpreted their dreams. And later when the cupbearer was present when Pharaoh needed his dreams interpreted. Sovereignly working when the famine hit and Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt. Sovereignly working when Joseph encountered them and then later forgave them. At every single step of the way, God has been sovereignly working to bring about the fulfillment of his grand plan of redemption. He has been working it sovereignly in the seemingly small things, like a father making a robe of many colors. Parents, be careful what, you, what kind of clothes you buy your kids. You, you never know what's going to happen between siblings. I kid. But seemingly small thing. I'm going to make my son a robe to show him how much I love him. Little did I know that he would end up in Egypt because his brothers hated him. Little did I know, though, that God would sovereignly work over all these things to make him the savior of the world. That's what's going on here. In seemingly small things, who could have seen how great an impact that insignificant decision had? And in large things, like Pharaoh exalting Joseph to rule in Egypt. I think sometimes we as Christians think that in the mundane of life, which is most of life, God's not working and then we have, the, but we wouldn't say that as Christians, but then we have these big things happen, maybe a big job promotion or we're moving. It's like God is clearly working. He's sovereignly kind of moving the, the big pieces in our life. But friends, that, that's not how God works. He is working in everything. God works sovereignly in everything, all things to bring about the good of those who love him. A robe given from a parent and Pharaoh exalting him to the right hand, to his right hand. God's sovereignly working in it all, right? He works in large and small alike. There is never a time in our lives when God is not at work to bring about his promises in the small and the large, in the good and the bad. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I don't know exactly how the things you're experiencing fit into God's sovereign purposes, right? I can't explain exactly why what is happening to you is happening. In that sense, the things that we experience in, in this life are kind of like a, a thousand-piece puzzle dumped out on a table with no cover picture to guide us. Really hard. What's this doing here? I have no idea where this goes. What, what should we be aiming for here? Kind of feels like that. But we're not the, we're not the puzzle maker. God is. He's the one working with, you know, trillion-piece puzzle putting it all together for his sovereign purposes. And it's not a puzzle to him, obviously, uh, but you get the point. When all is said and done, we will look back and see the completed plan of God. And then we will see how every trial, every sorrow, every joy, everything had its proper place and was used by God to bring about his glory and our eternal good. But we also see that living by faith also looks like repenting and seeking forgiveness when we've sinned against another person. Over the last few chapters, we've seen Joseph's brothers transformed into men of faith. And we see that on display here again at the close of the book in their willingness to acknowledge the wrong they'd done and seek forgiveness for it. Look at verses 16 and 17. The brothers sent a message to Joseph telling him that Jacob told them to tell Joseph to forgive them. And I want you to notice the words they used to describe what they did to him. Verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
by relaying Jacob's message to Joseph, they're acknowledging that what they did was transgression, sin, and evil. And they plead for forgiveness for it. For the kids and teens here, I want you all to see especially how great an example this is for us of genuine repentance and genuinely seeking forgiveness. Uh, When we're seeking forgiveness from another person, we should strive to acknowledge in as clear terms as possible the wrong we've done and call it what it is. If it is sin, we should call it sin, transgression, and evil. Right? I should not have yelled at you. That type of anger is evil in God's sight. Will you forgive me? I shouldn't have taken that item from your room without your permission. It's yours and not mine. I've sinned. Please forgive me. I was wrong to laugh at you when you got hurt. That was not kind of me. In fact, it was sinful. Will you forgive me? That's the type of clarity and specificity we want to seek, uh, strive for in our uh, seeking forgiveness and repenting towards other people. When we say we live by faith, what we mean is we are putting our hope in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, sins past, sins present, sins future. And while God has given us his spirit and his power to turn away from sin, we also know that we will still sin against others from time to time. But those who live by faith, when they do sin against another person, should readily admit what they've done and seek forgiveness. I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if there's somebody you need to seek forgiveness from for a sin or sins you've committed against them. Uh, We had a really encouraging experience with this this past week uh, as one of our children sought forgiveness for something they had done, and the experience of it made my wife think about something that she had done a long, long time ago, and she reached out to the person and sought forgiveness, and the woman responded with wonderful grace and wonderful kindness. I bring that up because if you're avoiding dealing with the sin you've committed, Uh, Not that this was weighing super heavily on my wife, but this is more about how the woman responded to her. I want to encourage you to trust what God says when he says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever forsakes them and confesses them will obtain mercy. Satan wants you to not confess your sins because he wants you to be inwardly tormented, like David, who said he tried to conceal his sins and his bones wasted away. Concealing sin will just keep eating away at you, but living by faith brings you into a place of mercy with God, especially, and freedom. And those who repent and confess find mercy and grace. But we also see that living by faith looks like, on the other side of the coin, forgiving those who've sinned against you and not holding their sins against them. Notice Joseph's response again in verses 17 to 21. He weeps. His heart is so moved with love for his brothers. Twice he tells them not to fear. He reassures them, comforts them, speaks kindly to them. In this, uh, Joseph wonderfully foreshadows the heart of Christ for sinners, right? Jesus calls us to approach his throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Dane Ortland describes Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin this way. Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And Jesus indeed does love us to the end in a much greater way than Joseph. He tells those who've sinned against him not to fear, 
He daily provides comfort for us through his presence and word, but then also calls those who live by faith to now treat others who sinned against us the same way that he has treated us. Think of Paul's instructions in Ephesians, which sound a lot like Joseph towards his brothers in this chapter. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Would you say your posture towards those who've sinned against you is like Joseph or like Jesus? Responding, even to those who've sinned in terrible ways against them, by not taking vengeance into their own hands, but entrusting themselves to God and freely forgiving and treating with continued kindness those who had sinned against them. Jesus expects us, commands us, who walk by faith, to forgive others. And he warns us of the dangers of not forgiving others. You think about the parable of the unforgiving servant who had an unpayable debt forgiven, but then had a relatively minor debt over another person that he hung over their head. He ended up being punished and thrown into prison. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In the same way, friends, we who have been forgiven so great a debt are obligated by the gospel of Christ to forgive those who've sinned against us. It's the knowledge of how much God has forgiven us that drives our forgiveness. God freely pardoned us even though our sins brought about the death of his son. How much more should we forgive those who sinned against us, even as terrible as those sins may have been? Who do you need to forgive in your life today? Is there anyone you're actively harboring anger towards? Are you allowing bitterness to poison your soul? Are you withholding forgiveness from them, even though Jesus hasn't withheld it from you? How can you, like Joseph, forgive those who've sought forgiveness and actively imitate God who treats those who sin against him with kindness? This is what it looks like to live by faith. And finally, because God will sovereignly keep all of his promises, we can also die in faith. We'll touch on this very briefly. God's sovereign purposes enable us to not only live by faith, but die in faith. That's what Moses is showing us in Jacob's dying wishes to be buried in Canaan, and Joseph's instructions to bring his bones back to the promised land. Death doesn't dissuade them from trusting in God's promises. They know that he will keep every one of his promises even after they have died. What a wonderful example this is to all of us, and especially older saints. Especially older saints. This is a great example of what it looks like to endure to the end. It looks like keeping your eyes fixed on that heavenly city to come. Not hoping in the riches and comfort of Egypt. I think that's one of the most uh, instructive things to me about Joseph and Jacob. Lived in Egypt for a long time, for decades. And even at the end of his life, Joseph looks at Egypt in all of its power, in all of its glory, and he says, no thanks. I want true riches. I want the true presence of God in his heavenly kingdom. I want to be with there, with him where he is. To the older saints here, keep going. Keep walking by faith. Your faith is an example to all of us about what it looks like to continue enduring to the end. I think of Pam 
and Maya, wherever you are, Maya. I think of Caroline in the back, of what it looks like to pursue Jesus all the way to the end. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep going. You can trust his promises, even in the face of death itself. Y'all's, uh, y'all's faith is, is an example to all of us. And we need to recognize that life is hard. There are many sorrows and trials along the way. You will experience loved ones passing, like Joseph did with Jacob. You will experience grief and loneliness and sadness. We see even the grief and tears and lamentation Joseph went through when Jacob died. We will mourn in this life. But because of God's sovereign power, we can mourn in hope, knowing that God is preparing for us a city with eternal foundations where grief and mourning and weeping will be no more. Friend, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, if you've found this world wanting, if you've sought pleasures and riches or joy and fulfillment in this world and you continue to find it lacking, I want you to know that there is a world where that yearning for fulfillment, where that unquenchable desire for joy will be fulfilled. But to gain access to that world that God is preparing for his people, must repent, must turn from sin, trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God sovereignly raised Jesus from the dead so that you might know that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice and he will accept all who turn to him in faith through his son Jesus. And now he is sovereignly carrying out his grand plan of redemption to gather a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to dwell with him in his presence in the true promised land forever. And because of that, we can continue living by faith and dying in faith because we know God will sovereignly keep all of his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to continue living by faith. We pray that you would cause us to endure to the end and that you would hold us fast in the midst of our entire lives and through the course of all of them and that you would bring us to be with you where you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.